Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm James Poss. And I'm Sean Bullard. And together we're Inside Unmanned's Drone Beat. Um, well, today we're going to be covering a subject uh, that is near and dear to our hearts because we've had a couple of bad instances here uh, where good drones have gone bad and certainly where bad drones have gone worse. So today and for the rest of this month, we're going to be talking about what we call in the DOD uh, Counter Unmanned Aerial Systems or Counter UAS. Who have we got uh, talking to us today about Counter UAS, Sean? Thanks, James. So we've got Dan Johnson with Oracle former Air Force Intelligence Colonel, 30 years of ISR experience, small UAS analyst with DHS. We've got Paul Rigby with Consortique, CEO, Jeff Pugh, Consortique, General Manager, UK Division. All right. So, Dan, uh, we're going to have you, you know, we kind of break this up into the clueless, um, criminal, and careless. Now, unfortunately, due to your experience working with DHS uh, as a senior small UAS analyst, you get stuck with the unenviable task of explaining the criminal side of this. And you can't get any more criminal than, uh, than ISIL. So could you explain how terrorists overseas have used small UAS? Um, uh, have they used them effectively? Uh, you know, is it a big threat? Could you, would you care to comment about that? Sure can. Uh, they have, uh, as you've seen, and, and you just need to look no further out than looking in uh, social media and the Internet in regards to what ISIS has done and, uh, and continues to do with small UASs. Uh, ISIS is uh, uh, an interesting organization to study, especially with small UASs. Um, they went ahead and, and, and early on they uh, created almost like a, a manufacturing or infrastructure that allowed them to go ahead and bring uh, small UASs into their battle space, modify the actual platforms themselves, uh, taking in uh, things like ISR intelligence collection and uh, over a matter of a couple months making them into uh, uh, targeting platforms with precision targeting like capabilities. Now when you say you know, small UAS platforms and stuff, were they actually going out making their own unmanned aerial systems or are they they getting this uh you know from the internet are these off-the-shelf drones that these guys are using these are off-the-shelf drones that are being delivered to them and they have the ability to modify those drones uh, as we've seen with a couple of attacks that we had on convoys to include ones that uh include an attack on iraqi forces that were clearing ieds back in 2016. Okay, so that, that's kind of scary. So you're saying that these guys are, are getting just regular drones uh, that, that you could buy anywhere on the Internet for, you know, say 500 bucks, and then doing, I mean, was this an incredible amount of, uh, of modification they were making for them, or is this the kind of thing that you could learn how to do on, on the Internet and, and do very easily? I mean, how much modification were they doing? Well, quite, quite a bit. You know, they were able to go ahead and use, you know, the capabilities from GPS to provide help them with the precision targeting capabilities. They were able to modify the actual drone uh, to deliver, you know, uh, grenades. Grenades. Yes, uh, which they were uh, dropping with precision accuracy over our, uh, our coalition forces that we had over in uh, Iraq and Syria. Okay, so ooh, uh, okay, so they were taking off-the-shelf drones uh, that you can get off the internet, modifying them to drop grenades, and you're saying you're drop they're dropping them with precision accuracy. What what does that mean? I mean, how how close? Uh, one foot, two foot, ten foot? How how close were these guys able to drop these? They're able to drop them on top of the you know the the, the ID clearing, you know. Uh, 
cars and trucks that were out there uh, clearing these, uh, you know, these IED fields that they had out there. So not only did the guys have a hard time, you know, with uh, clearing the IEDs that are in the ground, but they had to start worrying about the ones that are falling from the sky. Oh, wow. That's that's frightening. I mean, so how often were they? I mean, is this a, a once a day occurrence? Did you see this two or three times or is this dozens of times? It's, it's out there dozens, dozens of times. And uh, and once again, you know, you got to remember is, is that they do and use these platforms for ISR collection. And so what they're doing is they're they're finding out where the troop movements are. They're finding out where the you know, the, the most vulnerable spots are in regards to where activity is going on, and that's where they usually impact. So a lot of prep before they actually go ahead is being done, and before they actually drop a weapon on uh, on uh, you know our coalition forces. In regard to that prep that you talk about, are they? I mean, are they just going to Amazon? Are they going to DHL? Are they going to? I mean, how are they actually physically taking that process and getting it to the final source? Well, as you can imagine, you know, when when ISIS was created, they they stole quite a bit of money uh, from the Saddam uh, coffers that he had out there. So they're they were well uh, funded, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they were able to go ahead and, and just you know create a supply line into their uh into their cap or into their organization that allowed them to bring the stuff in to include you know modification capabilities and then uh, uh and just made a serious commitment to small uas's and how serious is that commitment is it is it is it is it is it increasing decreasing i think what you're seeing is you know the, the tremendous uh effort by u.s forces and, uh, and our coalition forces in regards to you know uh you know eradicating isis uh and so you know, their, their peak time was in the 2015, 2016 timeframe uh, and a little bit in the 17 timeframe. But there was a you know, huge effort to uh, to get them out of Syria. Well, but the point being, I mean, we may be getting rid of ISIL and hopefully we are, but their, their work kind of lives on through the Internet. I mean, so is this are the tactics, techniques and procedures to use a DOD word that ISIL employed for taking off the shelf drones or are those still out over the internet? I mean, could I download it and figure out how to how to turn a ordinary drone into a weapon of war? I think I think what's more scarier, okay, is is what you know, like say for instance our first responders are using these things for uh, our agricultural communities are using them for and all those tactics, techniques and procedures are all out on the internet. And so if you want to create and you want to modify an actual drone to be a sprayer, uh, just use your imagination in regards to what a terrorist could use that that actual sprayer on the drone for. Wow. So I mean not only is the, is this stuff available on the internet, but it's been fairly well publicized uh, what they did so you know there's a good chance that terrorists are already thinking along these lines uh, using ordinary drones against us sure and, and, and as you know it's it's you know the, the i'm a drone owner okay so i just want to make sure okay <laughs> and, I, and i enjoy my drone operations but uh the ease of use and uh and uh, the ability to go ahead and and you know fly these things pretty much anywhere uh in the airspace especially in the united states is is you know is, is fun. Um, and the lion's share of the time that we fly these things are usually over some critical infrastructure type locations like airports, you know, nuclear sites, submarines, those types of things are very interesting to drone flyers that are out there. I, I'm watching our British team. You mentioned uh, overflying airports, and they're I'm, they're they're nodding their heads up and down here. So we'll, we'll we'll talk about Gatwick in just a bit here, guys. Hey, so that's kind of ISIL, uh, you know, the, the the pure terrorist organization. 
where you've got guys ordering stuff off the internet and modifying it to drop. How about a nation state? I mean, what, what's Iran doing and uh, what are they doing with uh, some of the rebel groups like in Yemen that they sponsor? Uh, do you see them using drones? Well, I think the, the, the proliferation and the ease of use and then the ability and the capabilities as they grow, uh, especially with an ISR collection capability, is, is tremendous. Uh, one of the examples I can talk to you about about a nation state is, is Mexico. Um, I got a chance to get invited down to Mexico City and I got a chance to meet with uh, the federal interagency. Uh, they also brought me out to the, uh, uh, the Mexican Marines called CMAR. Uh, I got a chance to meet with the head of uh, CMAR to talk a little bit about what's going on with drones mm-hmm. down in that area. Um, they most recently bought like a drone counter drone capability. Um, it was one of those uh, drone busters that they have, it's like almost like a shotgun. Right. Um, but they're they're very concerned because the cartels are using the drones to follow them as they go ahead and they start their uh, um, practices for their direct actions against the uh, against the cartels. And so we have not only ISIS and the terrorist organizations, but we have criminal organizations like cartels using these drones, uh, which is is really concerning. How effective have they been in tracking? They were very good, and so it was it was to a point where they. Uh, where, where Mexico is going off and, and buying all these counter drone capabilities. And what they do is they set up almost like a perimeter around their direct action locations uh, to go ahead and potentially shoot these things down. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, it, and it's not just the Mideast that we've seen, um, you know, drones used quite a bit. You mentioned Mexico, uh, you know, that's a you know, relatively benign use for, for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or ISR. Um, wasn't there an attempt on uh, the president of uh, Venezuelan, President Maduro, uh, made by drones several months ago? Yeah, that was uh, back in August of 2018. Um, and that's also widely you know, uh, reported out on the internet. You can see mm-hmm. the actual drone coming in. Uh, he was doing a uh, um, almost like the, his version of the State of the Union. Uh, right. And uh, and when the drone came in, it exploded above his head, um, and it looked like you know uh, you know potential to uh, assassination attempt on his life. As you know, you know as you can see right now in the news right now, there's a lot of trouble within Venezuela. And, uh, and then there was a lot of uh, comeback from his side in regards to attribution. You know, was this his, you know, his uh, person that was trying to take over for him? And, uh, and those types of things, and those types of issues were, were discussed. But it was interesting because you could see the actual speech itself, and then you see people looking up, and then you see right. the drone exploding above his, above his head. So it's, it's, it's fairly scary. And then if you get the accuracy of these types of platforms, uh, they can be uh, even more scarier. Wow. Okay. So you, you've kind of covered the direct terrorist uh, threat um, out there. Um, uh, what else can these guys do? Well, I think that, that you know, most recently, uh, uh, Liz Sly, uh, she wrote a great article this weekend in, in the paper about an AK-47 drone-like capability. As everybody knows, AK-47 is the most uh, proliferated weapon that's out there within the market. Um, there was a uh, 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 symposium, or you know. So when you say AK-47, you're talking about a drone with a machine absolutely, gun, or are you talking about? They call it a suicide drone. It's it's being uh, marketed by a Russian company. It has the capability to fly at 80 miles an hour. It can carry a six uh, six pound uh, explosive charge, and it also can uh, fly up to 30 minutes. So over 30 minutes, it can fly 40 miles. Uh, it, and it's a tremendous capability. It's cheap, inexpensive, 
Uh, in the article, they didn't identify the cost of this thing, but um, as you can imagine, this, this potentially could be proliferated throughout the world. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I was talking with uh, Richard Fisher, who's our, our publisher for Inside on Man. He just came back from IDEX in Abu Dhabi, and I, I guess the Kalishnikov people are are actually selling this uh, at, at these big arms shows. So it's, uh, you know, it's not vaporware. It's not a PowerPoint. It's... Uh the drone equivalent of the uh, of the AK-47 out there. Amazing. So that's a really good question. And so let, let's segue into uh, domestic now. So we talk about drug smuggling in Mexico. We talk about some of the other things that are going on in this space. What do you see within, let's say, domestic, state and local that has captured your attention? I think uh, we, we, we did host, when I was working uh, with DHS, I had a chance to work uh, last three years with Office of the Director of National Intelligence. During that time, we, we hosted a futures working group of threats to and from small UASs, and then we also had a tabletop exercise that, we ho- that uh, U.S. NORTHCOM actually hosted with us. Um, one of the issues and concerns that you have is you have um, hobbyists, mm-hmm. and then you also have you know the bad guys that are sitting out there. That, and the ability to go ahead and determine between friend and foe. Right. Um, it, it's a huge concern right now. Um, and there's people that, you know, as I was talking to Jim earlier, is there's people that love to fly these things, myself included, uh, but you usually want to fly them around, you know, what what the Defense Department and DHS calls critical infrastructure. Right. Uh, and that includes airports. Right. Um, and so it's it's what concerns me quite a bit was when we had that uh, tabletop exercise and we had a futures working group, we had some folks come in from Virginia Tech and they talked about what would happen if a, you know, a small UAS got ingested into a commercial airliner. Uh, it was a fascinating uh, briefing. Uh, the guys from... Uh, from Virginia Tech actually moved up to upstate New York, and I, you know, I think maybe your next podcast you might want to bring that guy on to kind of explain, you know, what that can do to an actual airline. Uh, yeah, and actually we will we'll be talking about um, a lot of the research done by Assure, the FAA's okay, uh, Drone Research Center of Excellence. Talk about a little bit more about um, get down into kind of the smuggling of, of goods because you, you you mentioned Mexico and we've we've heard a little bit about that kind of in context but can you give us i mean are they flying drugs across the border with drones i think i think a lot of people have that that's like a misnomer you know okay. like if you think about a drone and you think about the ones we're talking about you know right the, the max they can carry is you know four you know four to five pounds and then then you have some drones that can actually carry about up to 50 and you think of the uh, the amount of drugs that are coming across the, the border it's it's it is it is an issue okay right right um, but it's not as concerning as you know as you might see you know somebody coming across a point of entry in a with a vehicle okay, okay so good point <laughs> so what about state penitentiaries that is an issue. There you okay. go. <laughs> now, 50 pounds of <laughs> drugs that go over real well in any state pen. Yeah, yeah. It went, you know, I guess what we saw, I think it was in South Carolina, we saw um, an actual uh, drone fly into the into the compound within the prison. They dropped off a pair of wire snippers, <laughs> and the guy, right. the guy escaped. And so it was... Uh, okay, so that's bad, right? That is bad, okay. yeah. And right. so, and then, you know, of course, drugs smuggling across, you know, and... You know, popping them into inside the you know the compound stuff is is is, is a continued concern, in the prisons and stuff like that. Right. I, well, we don't want to get into it now. We'll have a whole episode on there. But there's a whole argument about uh, what you guys, your former guys at DHS, will do to protect federal penitentiaries, and then what you know state 
local guys will do to protect their county penitentiaries or state penitentiaries about whether or not it's legal for the state of Virginia to protect its own penitentiary. It's, it's a whole different discussion, but that's a, a huge the, stuff there. One of the things that's interesting, and as you know, kind of studied this thing for a few years, is that you know, as of about three or four months ago, there's 42 states out of 50 states have their own counter UAS uh, uh, law enforcement. Uh, laws and regulations and so you know whatever the federal side wants to bring in you know they're going to have to complement it with whatever the state put in for countering small UASs. So do you see states uh, getting into a play where you're doing possible geofencing and some other technologies that are that are available today? I think you know you saw the the rollout DJI put a rollout of a geofence that's out there and uh, and so that's being you know uh, put out across Europe. Um, and so I, I think it potentially it's a matter of time. Okay. Just how reliable is geofencing? I mean, I, I read an awful lot on the internet uh, that, it, you know, it's kind of like an iPhone. You know, iPhone itself is pretty secure, but when you <laughs> jailbreak it, you can get into it. I mean, how easy is it to get past all these software restrictions there, Dan? I think the, the guys from uh, out in the UK, they can tell you, you know, otherwise, but it, it is a, uh, you have to be a willing partner to go ahead and, and download the app. Okay, so if you don't want to download the app, you could still run it off the old version, no. uh, right? And, and okay. so, and then the other thing is, is that you know, it is it's just an alert, you know. And so, for the good guys, it's it's okay. If you're a bad guy, you're gonna you're gonna bypass the stuff, and you're still gonna right. continue to you know, go on to whatever right. your objective was for that particular mission. You know, I think this is a perfect break break for uh, Paul Rigby in the UK. He's about to uh, uh, jump out of his chair over here, and so uh, Paul, why don't you take it away for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a few interesting things we've picked up in the the media, um, especially with uh, one of the trade associations out here in the UK, is that the narrative which the press would probably have you believe on the the scale of the problem. Um, Obviously, good news doesn't sell stories so much, but a lot of bad news of of people smuggling drugs into prisons, which is absolutely a possibility and has happened. Um, But when we um, were... When we when the uh, prison service was approached, they didn't actually have the explicit data on on how many were via drone or how many was via other um, problems. So sometimes I think it's it's about what the press would have you believe, and sometimes I think we've got to make sure that we have this like evidence led led approach. Um, I think drugs and uh, other uh, nefarious items going into prisons uh, already has an issues through via corruption via via existing sort of methods, um, but obviously that doesn't necessarily sell newspapers. Um, but that's you know the the prison service in the UK absolutely looking at how they um, defend against this um, issue. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that every time a new piece of technology gets introduced into society that brings advantages to society, it also brings advantages to criminals, right? So um, look at mobile phones, look at computers, you know, it helps um, criminals exchange information quicker. When Google Maps comes in, it helps people recce um, targets and and get that information. Um, Now we're at the stage where drones are being introduced. I think, you know, the salient point that uh, was really brought home for me was that you're bringing Air Force capabilities to your average person, you know, off the shelf. Um, Not so long ago, being able to uh, undertake aerial reconnaissance on targets, being able to drop munitions from the sky, um, that was only really available to Air Forces. Now it's available to anyone who wants to buy off the shelf, you know, get it delivered next day. Um, And with a little bit of uh, intuition, initiative and utilizing 3D printing and making up various parts, you can you can put these t- these systems together yourself in your garage and go and 
cause untold you know harm or disruption to any, to any number of people we've actually seen that I mean, we've actually seen, as you said, ISIL ordering off-the-shelf drones and uh, doing minimal, minimal modification. Uh, you know, I don't know if they have garages there in ISIL, but I mean, is what Paul said true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you've seen You know, they have uh, their whole Gatwick uh, uh, incident that they had, the couple that they had, in regards to you know just identifying one drone in, in their airspace, and then uh, then what happened right before Christmas. I think it's it's even more concerning in regards to identifying the friend or the foe that's out there flying these things. Yeah. Now, before we get on to Gatwick, I just want to ask you, you know, one more question while we got the spotlight on you, Dan. Um, a lot of the discussion in counter UAS is going to be uh, center on the fact that uh, these a lot of these are off-the-shelf drones. Um, a lot of them uh, rely on having a remote pilot to actually fly the aircraft. And a lot of our more effective countermeasures involve, uh, you know, doing something to that data link, you know, telling the drone to go home or jamming it or something like that. How often do you see uh, drones that are that are actually autonomous that are that are flying a pre-programmed GPS course or something like that? That if you jam the data link, there wouldn't be anything uh, that you could do about it. Is that is that a viable threat? Have you seen that out there? Yes, yeah, so, uh, you know, we saw ISIS was able to modify their platforms to go ahead and put it on a pre-programmed track. Uh, where they went ahead and flew against uh, some waypoints to an actual target that's, that was out there. Uh, a lot of the capabilities that are being you know talked about, you know, are you know counter drone capabilities with the pilot actually talking to the actual drone itself. And so that's we used to call that line of sight when I was in the, mm-hmm. in the military. Right. Uh, right. When you get to these beyond line of sight capabilities, uh, that's even more concerning. Um, and and I'm not sure if we have the capabilities that can actually counter those right now. Uh, that would be something that you you know have to ask the torrent. Well, and, and we're definitely going to get that in, into that in other episodes. Okay. But but let me just make sure that because this is a key point. So even with off the shelf drones, you can program. Um, GPS waypoints in them, and they'll fly it. And even if you jam that data link, it's going to still keep going. Correct. It's not on a data link. It's, it's pre-programmed. You wow. know, so it's it's going to go to point X, whatever whatever you say. Dan, that's great. Now we're going to segue over into Paul and Jeff over in the UK. But before we do that, a short message from our sponsor. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rody and Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW satellite technology avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rody and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. Welcome back to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat with our guest, uh, Dan Johnson, Paul Rigby, and Jeff Pugh. Dan's with Oracle. Paul is with Consortique, and Jeff Pugh is with Consortique as well. And our sponsor, Rody Schwartz. Hey, so um, so Paul and Jeff, why don't you give us kind of a rundown of Consortique and what you guys do over there in the UK and, and internationally? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sean. Um, so our mission is to help organizations put drones in the sky safely. Uh, about four or five years ago, um, the UK division of the company uh, put together the first o- operation of a small UAS flying around central London in the middle of the day for Kevin Costner to do some car chase scenes. And despite having 10 years background in air traffic control and a number of colleagues helping me out on that, it was one of the most difficult things we put together. 
Um, and there came the you know the problem was if if it's that hard for aviation professionals to to tackle this, how is the industry at large going to utilize small US without aviation experience? Um, so we, we took all that and turned it into a training consultancy and software organization. So typically today you'll find us operating with big, large uh, conglomerates, helping them stand up their drone programs, uh, both here in the UK. Uh, we have a team out in Annapolis in Maryland, um, headed up by Brian McKernan. And more recently, that team have been down to Ecuador working with 21 energy and power companies, helping them, again, stand up their drone programs. Um, I think it'd be fair to say industry at large is they're still dipping their toe in the water in what small US can do. Um, and I think we're quite far away from uh, realizing what some of the uh, the market reports out there would have you believe where we're going to get to. And that's probably because of some of the blockers that are in the way um, and you know more, more t- leadership needed in terms of how we tackle that regulatory environment. All right. So just to kind of put this in context, a counter UAS, we've got Dan here talking about DHS, talking about the criminal use. You guys do training and you're more concerned with making sure that we uh, don't have any uh, clueless or careless folks, uh, you know, uh, doing anything untoward with drones. Is that true? Yeah. So we one part of our business, a large part of our business, as Paul has mentioned, is is training. Um the environment in the UK for um, operating UAS is is fairly well established and mature. Um, if you want to operate your drone commercially, you have to get a permission from the civil the Civil Aviation Authority, and in order to get that permission, um, you have to have undertaken an accredited form of training. Um, so that covers the the commercial professional, and and typically those people who are receiving those permissions, um, they're they're law abiding. They're wanting to um, make a business from it or incorporate the drone within an existing business. So of course they're going to be motivated to do this correctly in accordance with the law, and they need to learn um, all aspects of air law. Um, airspace, meteorology, human factors, all of the things that would be common to manned aviation training that we may have been familiar in our previous manned aviation careers and transferring that into the unmanned. I think where it gets very um, interesting and difficult, particularly when you bring in the aspect of counter UAS, is the fact that the drone industry, and I'm talking here about the manufacturers, you know, they're focusing really heavily on the ease of use of these platforms. Um, all of the drones that we see now come from advancements um, in microelectronics um, that enabled the smartphone revolution to happen, and that's all been based on ease of use. So someone untrained can um, intuitively learn and understand how to use that technology. Drones are exactly the same. So whilst we're making it easier for both commercial operators and recreational users to be able to use these drones innocently and recreationally, that is, of course, making it entirely um, possible, feasible and um, easy for those who wish to use it for nefarious uses. Yeah. So, Jeff, Jeff, walk us through what happened at the Gatwick incident. What do you think? So I think the Gatwick incident has a number of really interesting aspects. I think I was pretty quick um, on the first day that that it broke and I went straight onto Twitter and I, I called it out as a, an act of terrorism. And there's a lot you could debate that a lot. But I think in terms of what was achieved um, by whoever um, undertook the incident, um, 
a number of key things happened. One is that they disrupted the second busiest airport in the UK, um, one of the busiest, if not the busiest, single runway um, airport um, in Europe. Um, it affected over 140,000 passengers over a oh three-day period between the 19th and 21st of December, and that was uh, a cancellation of 1,000 flights. Wow. Um, so in terms of disruption, um, you only have to... You know, as a mental exercise, you only have to think if that was a coordinated attack, and I, I use the word attack carefully, if that was a coordinated attack and you could have affected Heathrow, Stansted, Birmingham, Manchester, um, Schiphol, Paris, Charles de Gaulle, a number of the big European hubs at the same time, then we could have been talking about a very serious aviation incident. Um, and I don't think um, it's beyond the realms of possibilities to, to think that the government and the security services in the UK and overseas are thinking exactly along those sorts of lines because the the potential, we all know that the safest place for an aircraft is on the ground. Right. Um, and all you have to do is say, I've seen a drone and you've seen the reaction. Can I ask you a quick question on this? Uh, in regards to the incident that occurred back in July, do you see this as a copycat or a follow-on engagement with a small drone around Gatwick? Well, there was an earlier, so you're talking about July of 2018, there Correct. was a, a, another instant where a drone um, was Same. up over Gatwick. You're right. Okay. Which, what, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so the, the, there were a couple of previous incidents at Gatwick. I think they were from 2017, actually, and um, they were much shorter in duration um I th nats which is the the uk's um, air navigation services provider who at the time um ran the contract for running air traffic services out of gatwick they, they no longer do um but the the estimated bill um for those incidents which i think ran to about an interruption of uh, and i'm going from memory here from about 30 minutes to an hour of disruption um, was in the tens of millions. Um, only uh, well, okay. Let only me, one me, airline. Let I'm me like, stop you right, right there. Sorry. Go so, and I don't want to, you know, scaremonger. So, what you're saying is, back in 2017, that could have been a practice run for what happened in December of 2018. And I think I heard Jeff say, as bad as it was to shoot down, uh, to uh, shut down the second largest uh, airport in the United Kingdom for three days. We actually got off light because if they'd shut down Heathrow, they shut down Stansted, they'd uh, shut down Charles de Gaulle. I mean, they could have locked down Europe. Dan, uh, <laughs> we'll go into the physical countermeasures. What, you know, what's our government doing about this? One of, the, one of the things we did when I was working at, uh, when I was DHS, I was uh, assigned over to the Office of Director of National Intelligence. And so we were looking at uh, rewriting the National Strategy for Aviation Security, which was written back in 2007. Um, what I'm happy to say is is that the folks from the National Security Council and the Federal Interagency and our private sector were able to publish the new document, which identifies emerging uh, disruptive technologies. Within that, you know, all the work that we've been doing, and we worked a lot with Jim and, and his team here, uh, we identified, you know, uh, the emerging threat from small UASs and in uh, the different characters uh, that are out there in regards to that to include what we talked about today the the terrorists the criminals and also nation state actors in regards to that threat coming across the across the bow okay all right i feel better and i and i guess that document is available publicly on the internet what's yeah. the name of it again it's called the national strategy for aviation security president trump signed it out in december of 2018 
So, folks, I want to thank Dan Johnson from Oracle, Paul Rigby from Consortique, Jeff Pugh as well from Consortique, and thank you for joining us for Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.